It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So it's a unique thing starting this series. I, I really struggled with mapping it out so that it could build uh, strategically because chronologically is hard because it's a shorter series than my previous series. Uh, and I, it's like, what do I choose to emphasize? What do I choose to de-emphasize? And again, this just is a reminder, if you're just picking up on this and you missed the first session, I'm building an understanding of the culture in which Abe Lincoln arrived into his presidency. What did he step into? And Abe Lincoln is going to be symbolic sort of of us and our unique assignment and unique challenge that we are carrying right now. Because we live in a culture not altogether dissimilar from what is called the antebellum culture, the, the period before the Civil War. It was, in fact, arguably far worse than ours is now, which is hard for some of us to imagine, but it was an extremely violent and profane era. And so how does the church navigate? How do we as individuals, how do we lead our individual lives? How do we lead our families? How do we lead our churches? So if you have any degree of responsibility of leadership, which you do because you're over your body and your thought life no matter what, this is a very, very critical series to begin to chew on and be able to understand what do we do in a time like this? What does the wisdom of Scripture say? How are we supposed to live in such an hour? Boy, wouldn't you like to have that answer? So even though I'm not usually the type of guy that dishes out pat answers and says, this is exactly what you should do, I'm going to give principles and general answers that hopefully will steer you and give you a lot of practical direction. So we're going to go into this second message. It's called The Feud. Boy, I had a lot of different titles uh, that I, I messed around with for this one, and I end up with this short little diddly squat title uh, called The Feud, but that's exactly what it is. And it's, not, it's like one of those uh, ancient feuds, too, because when we think of the United States starting in like 1776, we don't really understand the fact that the feud that is in existence during the Civil War period, the 1861 timeline, Happened, it started long before this. In fact, long before the United States began. Most of us don't know that. And so that's why a message like this is going to be important for us to understand. So I'm going to introduce you to three men. Now, what do these three men have to do with antebellum America? So again, antebellum means before the belligerence or before the battle or before the war. So that's that period of 1815 to 1861. What do these three men have to do with that time period. So this will teach all of you that are just listening to this via podcast and are not uh, watching the video to just wonder. It's like, what three men are on the screen right now? They're three sort of old-fashioned uh, looking guys that are from way, way back, uh, long before the start of our country. And so I'm going to introduce them to you. James I, we have on the far left, Charles II in the middle, and then a guy named Oliver Cromwell. Now, you may recognize the names. All you have to do is brush against history a little, and you say, oh, I'm sure that England had some Jameses, and I'm sure they had some Charles. But you may not know much about these guys. And I don't know that it's necessary that you know a tremendous amount about them, other than that they play a huge role in American history, which is rather strange, considering they were dead long before America even came to be. 
So let me just sort of divide them into two sides. So you'll notice that I put James I and his son, by the way, Charles II, over to the left and put a title next to them called the Cavaliers. And then I put Oliver Cromwell on the right, and we're going to call him a Puritan. You see, for all practical purposes, that doesn't mean much to us because those aren't terms that we oftentimes use. Now, many of us know about the Puritans, and we know uh, what the word could generally mean, but uh, cavalier is not necessarily a typical word that we would use, uh, except for in a positive sense. Uh, you know, a man that is behaving with a cavalier attitude would be an honorable attitude. And so for all practical purposes, what's the big deal? The Cavaliers and the Puritans. And if I put a verses in the middle, you might understand. These two have been at war for a long time. So I, I, I put a little rip of the page. Down, and there should be a sound that goes like, and, and divides these two. Now, my little rip that I put in was some like PNG file, but I couldn't match the same color. So you have to use your imagination that it's a perfectly designed graphic here. But just to sort of show you that there's a rift between these two, the Cavaliers and the Puritans, they do not get along. So let's look at a brief history of American heritage. So Puritans versus Cavaliers. You see, at the time of Abe Lincoln, in 1861, there is a divide in the nation. And guess what it's going to be described as? A divide between Puritans and Cavaliers. Oh, isn't that interesting? Because that divide was over in England long before this time. In fact, hundreds of years before. So in 1604, James I is going to rise to power in England, and he's going to create havoc for the Puritans and the Separatists. Now, if you have ever studied American history, you know the story of the Pilgrims, who were Separatists, who were actually going to lead then for Leiden, Holland, and then they're going to leave Leiden, Holland, because that wasn't working out either, and come and establish Plymouth Plantation. Okay, that's the start of America. And so there is a problem in, a, in England at this time, because you have Martin Luther that's really sort of stirred things up in the 1500s. Now you have the 1600s, and you have all these different groups branching out that are questioning the church at England, and they're just sort of starting their own movements and their works. So this was a threat to the church at England. The church at England and the, uh, the monarchy or the, the leadership or the kingship of the nation of England were intertwined. And so as a result, this was a threat to the nation, to the leadership. And so this is going to create a great season of persecution for both the Puritans and the separatists. So the Cavaliers would be the ruling class in this time. So James I, and then his son is going to come into power, Charles II, and he is going to once again exert his authority and create havoc for the Puritans and the separatists, and uh, they're going to have a really a rough go of it. The Quakers were also thrown in there as well. So 1620, and I put a picture of Oliver Cromwell there because he sort of is symbolic, even though he wasn't around yet. Uh, he's, he's symbolic of uh, this. The pilgrims land in America, the north. Many Puritans follow over during the subsequent years. So 1604 to uh, 1650, or 1650s, you're going to have this season of persecution and exile. And that exile is going to actually begin to take shape in the north. And the north is going to have a lot of these runaways, a lot of these people that are escaping for their life to find religious freedom in the United States. Of course, many of us celebrate this, right? And so this is going to be that Puritan, separatist, pilgrim stock that is actually coming over during this period of time. Now, what happens 
when Charles II is eliminated, he was actually uh, beheaded by uh, one of the voting members was a guy named Oliver Cromwell. And so 1649, King Charles I, I say Charles I, should be Charles II, is beheaded. And this is going to lead to a whole new regime in England. Guess who heads that up? A Puritan. 1653, Oliver Cromwell becomes Lord Protector of England. And the same way that James I and Charles II have created havoc for the nation, for the Puritans and the Separatists, well, now Oliver Cromwell is going to create havoc for the formal Church of England or the Cavaliers. And the persecution is going to break out in the opposite direction. So 1653 through 1658, Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan, leads the persecuting and purging of the Cavaliers from England. Now, if they were asking me, I would say, guys, you're not really solving the riddle. By going the opposite direction and just overcompensating and saying, we'll get you back, this actually doesn't solve the problem. And it doesn't in England, and that problem is going to carry over to the United States. Why? Because in America, the very formation of it is going to be in the north are all the Puritans and the Separatists, and who's going to arrive in the south? The Cavaliers. And so as a result, we have a whole bunch of people that are, pursu- that are fleeing from persecution that end up in the United States to get their religious freedom. And then they're going to end up there together all over again. So I have that map, the same map I used in the last message for the Missouri Compromise. And you see the blue to the north, which is going to be the anti-slavery abolitionist uh, side politically. And then you have the red states to the south, which are going to be more of the pro-slavery, at least at this time. I'm not making a statement about how people think today in those states. But at that time, it was the majority politically leaned in two different directions. Now, the South, the, the Red, the Cavaliers is what I'm calling them on the screen, looked at the North as all Puritans. You know, they just labeled them all as Puritans. All those blue states, they're all Puritans, okay? And the Puritans up North, you know what they said about the South? They're all Cavaliers, Okay, so they all think like this. They all behave like this. They've always behaved like this for the past 250 years, ever since James I took the throne. And so, in other words, there's this mindset that is deeply embedded in our nation that started in a completely different nation, ironically. So the North, what makes up the North? It's Puritans that fled the persecuting fervor of the kings of England between 1604 and 1653. And what makes up the South? Cavaliers that fled the persecuting fervor of Oliver Cromwell, 1653 through 1658. So isn't that an irony? That all these people have come together to enjoy religious freedom, and yet when all is settled and now we have peace in our country and no longer do we have a revolutionary war, the War of 1812 is over, you know, it's like, hey, Now, can we get along? No. Then all of the deeper issues begin to come out. Now it's the inner squabbling, the same things that can happen in our life. So antebellum America, it's a bomb ready to blow. So the New York Herald in the late 1850s, now just to remind you of the time period we're in, because we're sort of skipping around in time periods, the antebellum period or the period before the Civil War is going to be usually marked from 1815 after the War of 1812 concludes to 1861, the start of the Civil War. So we're in the late 1850s, so we're like a couple years before the war, the Civil War, and you have this in the New York Herald. 
The people of the north and those of the south are distinct and separate. They think differently. They spring from a different stock. They are different every way. They cannot coalesce. The Puritan and the Cavalier will always fight when they meet. There is nothing in common between them but hate. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because if I were to describe what we have in the United States now, it's not territorial. It's not based on geography. It's based on ideology. And it's not altogether that different than that quote in the New York Herald. You see, there seems to be two types of people in this country, according to most, and they hate each other, and they're of a different stock, and they cannot coalesce. In fact, many of us have even thought that through. Should we form two nations? You know, how should we do this? The rift is so deep and the animosity so great that how could we ever coexist? There is a feud at work. So this is a Tennessee-born army officer, again, late 1850s, a couple years before the Civil War. He says, the dissimilarity of human nature between the Puritans of the North and the flathead Cavaliers of the South, the Puritans were called roundheads and the, uh, the Cavaliers of the South were called flatheads. So the dissimilarity of human nature between the Puritans of the North and the flathead Cavaliers of the South is the foundation, the bedrock cause of our political wrangling and disputations. Isn't that interesting? You see, they're not saying that it's slavery. They're saying it's the distinction between the North and the South and the fact that one's Puritan and one's Cavalier. You see, this is the real angst. Now that comes out in the fact that the Puritans, being more focused on morality, that is one of their great strengths, is to say this is what the Word of God says, this is what we cannot do, what you are doing is against the Word of God, and then they draw a hard line. And the South the Cavalier was marked more by their nobility and their honor. And so they were going to have the code of honor and they, were, they thought very highly of themselves and their honor. And so they thought this moralizing from the North to be rather odious considering look at the way we live. We live with so much honor. You guys don't even have honor. You just have morals. And so the, where the South maybe celebrated more beauty, the North celebrated a simple, clean life which with, you know, out a lot of frills. And so as a result, you had this tension between the two, and they did not like each other. So when the issue of slavery comes to the surface, the Cavalier in the South is going, of course the Puritans would be against it. They're against anything that actually adds life to our life, that actually adds fluidity to our life, I could only guess that they would moralize, come up with a reason to denounce it. And then, of course, in the opposite way, the Puritans are looking down to the Cavaliers in the South and are going, of course, they're so grotesquely interested in their own fleshly indulgence that they can't even see beyond their nose when they're harming someone else's life. And so as a result, you have a problem, a built-in problem in our nation. So this is the historian David Reynolds in his book, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in his times. Each side touted what it saw as its virtues while vilifying the other. Now I could just stop there and we could all have a laugh because that is precisely what we do today. We are going to tout our own virtues, what we are doing correctly, and then we're going to vilify the opposite side of the ledger. The South boasted of its stable institutions, especially slavery, and its traditions of honor, hospitality, and chivalry. Mark Twain had these values in mind when he wrote that the Civil War was caused by the Sir Walter disease, a reference to the South's obsession with Walter Scott's historical novels, which idealized cavalier chivalry. 
The South viewed the North as a hotbed of anarchic reform movements, most notoriously abolitionism, which allegedly derived from Puritanism. It charged the North with fanaticism, self-righteousness, narrowness, and materialism. The Confederate President Jefferson Davis, listen to this, said, our enemies are a traditionless, rootless race. From the time of Cromwell to the present moment, they have been disturbers of the peace. Many Northerners, in contrast, saw themselves as worthy descendants of God-fearing Puritans who had established liberty in America. Southerners, they maintained, had created a society of oppression, decadence, and injustice. Wow. Now, I don't know if you guys are starting, starting to realize that the devil has a playbook. Same playbook. In every generation, he whips it out because every generation seems to forget its history. We seem to overlook the fact that there is a better way to do this as described in the Word of God. And so we fall for the same bait, the same traps, and we keep referring back to James I and Charles II or Cromwell on this side, and we look at those across the aisle from us, those that have a worldview that is different, ones that have a perspective that is sharply unrelated to ours, and we find we vilify them and tout our own virtues. Well, the Christian is supposed to not function in this zone. We love everyone in the room and we do not allow sharp lines to be drawn. That does not mean we agree with everyone in the room or that we think that everyone just going to heaven and hell is going to be empty. It's not that we come to any extreme position other than what the Word of God says, but we do not create hard lines. We do not draw lines in the room and say, you over there, us over here. We learn to love across those lines. Every missionary is going across lines to reach out their hand to say, I want to invite you into the kingdom of heaven. I want you to meet Jesus Christ. So Chilton White, who was an Ohio congressman in 1864, now this is in the middle of the Civil War, the rivalry will never end until you transplant the principles of the Puritans in the very heart of the Cavalier, of the New Englander in the Carolinian, a task which the conflicts of century have so far failed from accomplishing that they have but served to widen the breach and make the line of demarcation more palpable and distinct. Now, some of us have had a Chilton White sort of thought lately. You see, as it says, the rivalry will never end. Those, those liberals out there will never be fixed until they think like us. Okay, now, it's really hard not to come to a conclusion. However, you can sort of see that Chilton White thinking, where it's just like, until the South thinks like the North, we're going to have a problem. Well, of course, what do you think the South is thinking? Until the North thinks like us, the South, we're going to have a problem. This is the big doozy that I want uh, to walk us through. In 1854, now remember, the Civil War is going to start seven years after this, I'm going to call this the Great Evangelical War. Both the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church separated into North and South branches. We actually have a split in the Church of Jesus Christ. The Baptists themselves are going to split North and then Southern Baptists. You're going to have the Methodists do the same on political lines. So as a result, you're going to see the Church itself splinter along the same lines of the enemy's playbook. Listen to even what the leaders in that time, Henry Clay, a Kentucky senator in 1854, is going to say, this sundering of the religious ties which have hitherto bound our people together, I consider the greatest source of danger to our country. John Calhoun, South Carolina senator, in his final speech says, with the churches now divided, nothing will be left to hold the states together 
except force. Isn't that interesting that even in this time, they recognized that the church was a glue that held things together. But when the church itself is willing to follow the culture, follow the enemy's playbook, and divide over the same issues, we have issues. You see, we cannot, as the church, participate in the same political game. We are functioning at a higher level. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of the very things that are destroying this territory down here, this earthen realm. We have been given a position to not fight a battle of flesh and blood, but to fight spiritual battles, ones that actually cause things to be fixed in the earthen realm. Are there only two parties to join? I mean, isn't that sort of how it feels? It's like... Okay, I could be a Puritan or I could be a Cavalier. That's like sort of all there is in America. There's a North and there's a South. Did you know that there is a mysterious third party in all of this? We're going to say introducing the Quakers. Listen to what David Reynolds says about the Quakers. There was one cultural current, however, that was not a source of intense sectional tension. Quakerism. The Quakers, once a persecuted minority, had become widely viewed as a mediating influence in America. Many Quakers had settled in the mid-Atlantic region, forming a buffer between New England and the South. While Quakers opposed slavery, appealing to, the, to Northerners, they also held attraction for many Southerners because of their tolerant outlook. As pacifists, they were not about to go to war over slavery. So there's this group that is right in the in-between sec- segment. So you have the north and you have the south. You have the Puritans up north and the Cavaliers down south. And you have this buffer region full of Quakers, of all people. Now, they understand what it's like to be persecuted too, just like the Puritans, just like the Cavaliers. But the way they handle it is very different. They're not looking for a fight. They're looking to bring wholeness and health. And so as a result, this, these Quakers are not offensive to the north, of course, because they're anti-slavery. It's like, okay, you guys got it right. And to the south, they're not offensive because they're tolerant. They're not looking to change the south other than to appeal through their own life. And so as a result, you have a very interesting tension that is created because in the midst of this, there's this group that both sides like. In DeBose's review in the late 1850s, just years before the Civil War, this was written. Three great elements enter into the character of the American people derived from the colonization of three distinct classes of society. These are the Puritan, the Quaker, and the Cavalier. While the Puritan and the Cavalier remain perennial enemies, the Quakers stand for reconciliation. In their geographical location and their mild faith, the Quakers promise to unite in an indissoluble bond the jarring interests of the Puritan and the Cavalier. Now, I am not attempting to make some type of pitch for all of us to become Quakers. And, you know, I, I'm not doing a deep examination, a deep dive into their theology and what made them function the way they did. I'm not trying to say, hey, we need to become non-resistance. What I'm, what I'm wanting to drive out, though, is there's a version of Christianity in this, because this whole nation was Christian. Puritans called themselves Christians. The Cavaliers called themselves Christians. You have the Quakers that called themselves Christians. But there is one group that is seeking reconciliation, that is seeking wholeness, and the other two are seeking battle. They want to kill each other. And I'm going to say, if you lay those out on a table and say, Eric, which one matches the Christ model more? I'm going to pick the Quaker. So whether or not we end up concluding that we should all become Quakers, we should adopt some of what the Quakers had. They had something for their hour, and it was an elixir. 
So Lincoln, uh, the Quaker, you know that when Lincoln is running for office, you know how he's going to pitch himself? He is going to describe himself as a Quaker. Uh, you know, he didn't do that accidentally. Do you know that he did it very much on purpose? You see, he knew how the culture was functioning in this time. He understood the James I, the Charles II, the Oliver Cromwell stuff. He knew the battle. And he knew that if he identified as a Puritan, which he had Puritan stock in his background, well, then the Cavaliers were going to reject him. He knew that if he identified as a Cavalier, because he had a Cavalier uh, granddad, uh, well, then the Puritans up north would reject him. However, he did have a little Quaker in his background, so what did he call himself? A Quaker. Why would he do that? You see, he is deliberately choosing to say, look, I'm not hostile to either. I want to bring this nation together. So David Reynolds, a historian, says, presenting himself as the descendant of Quakers helped identify Lincoln with a group that won sympathy in both the North and the South. Quakerism furthered his goal of national unity. Why bring up his Puritan Cavalier or Baptist ancestors when he knew that Quakerism had broad cultural appeal? Besides, he was genuinely attracted to aspects of the Quaker faith, especially its dismissal of creeds and its opposition to slavery. So, you know, David Reynolds, when he talks about it, sort of intimates that it was somewhat misleading on Lincoln's part to do this. And I can understand his argument. However, I am fascinated by the fact that he presented himself as a Quaker. You know, it's interesting because I, in my role in Ellerslie, I have so many different denominations that are coming together, and I could laugh out loud at different times knowing the different people that are in the room saying these two would never get along, but because this environment creates an atmosphere that says we are looking above that to see Jesus and him crucified as our North Star, and that we are going to unite as Christians, not just as denominations, you see, these two can actually coexist in the same training because we are creating a different atmosphere here. It's a purposeful atmosphere, something that we call the Ellerslie experiment. And I would say, for the most part, it works. I'm not saying that it works with everyone, because there are certain people that come in here and get really mad at Eric that I do not buy their uh, doctrinal creed and uh, to the exact point, and I will not change from my position. And so, yes, it can still create some conflicts, and yes, it's not perfect, but wow, uh, I have seen something rather amazing in this environment where people from every stripe and color, denominational background of Bible-believing Christians have functioned together in an amazing, beautiful harmony here. So Henry Grady, who is a New Georgia newspaper editor, you're gonna, if, you, if you're looking at this on a video, you see there's a date on this. This is 1886. Now, the Civil War is going to end in 1865. So this is 21 years after the end of the Civil War, and this man is giving a speech, and he is going to reference Lincoln. He says, From the union of colonists, Puritans, and Cavaliers, from the straightening of their purposes and the crossing of their blood, came he who stands as the first typical American, Abraham Lincoln. And then it says, loud and continued applause. He was the sum of the Puritan and Cavalier. For in his ardent nature were fused the virtues of both. In the depths of his great soul, the faults of both were lost. He was greater than the Puritan, greater than the Cavalier, in that he was American. Now, that's a very pro-American sort of quote, and I'm sure people around the world would roll their eyes at that and go, oh, great. However, let's remove the word American from that. Let's just talk about the fact of what we're called to as Christians. 
we are not called to be sectional, to be denominational, to just be a Puritan or to be a cavalier. Hey, make your choice. But we are called to be Christians, which rises above that. And it can take the beauties of the Puritan and the strengths of honor and hospitality of the cavalier and without excuse, without apology, blend them together because we just want to be Christ. We're not trying to impress a denomination. We want to live for Jesus. And as a result, it fuses the beauties of both together and throws out their weaknesses. And that's what a Christian is. In, in this quote by Henry Grady saying, that's a true American. And, you know, I like the, the sound of it, especially since I'm an American. But, you know, I would say that that doesn't necessarily fit what I would say is a true American anymore. I'm not raising my kids to be Americans. I'm raising them to be Christians. And so my, the thing I esteem in this, even though I dearly love my country, is I want us to see a vision for leadership in and through this time, this tumultuous time of division, and to recognize that there is a better way of approaching this, and that Jesus Christ has laid out a pattern. You know what? It cost Lincoln his life to do it. And yet, for many of us, we have never really counted the cost that to truly be influential in our generation may mean we lay down our life. And what's funny is here we are after peace and unity and all these things, and we're going to lay down our life for that. You see, we want to show love. We want to show the nature of Jesus. We want to communicate the truth of Jesus unvarnished and undiluted. But to do that, we need to have his nature. My sister once said, you can speak what Jesus speaks, and it could be accurate. But if you don't speak it the way Jesus would speak it, it's oftentimes not even truth anymore. You see, truth has two components. It's not just the facts and the data. It's also the nature in which it is spoken, the nature in which it's lived, the nature in which it's delivered. Those two, if you separate the truth from the nature, it's no longer truth. It might be right, but it's actually wrong in the fact of how it's delivered. You can harm someone with truth. People do it all the time. But if that truth is blended and grafted in with the nature, you have yourself a nuclear bomb. It changes the face of the world. And that's what we as the church have been entrusted. We've been entrusted with the truth, Jesus. And we've been entrusted with the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love. And they infuse together. And in this body, I become a mobile carrier of the divine power of God Almighty. And when that enters my marriage, when that enters my family, when it enters a church, it becomes a very, very powerful tool to stem the tide of breakdown and disaster. What sort of Christians are we? Romans 12, 18 through 21. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, many of us know that scripture, and we have memorized that scripture. However, how does it apply to our modern day? Uh, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Are we supposed to listen to that, or is that just good ideas for first century Christianity? You see, this is our pattern. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, God is the one responsible for the judgment, not you. It is not your job to just bop someone in the nose. Let God play out his role. 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. I, I can't feed my enemy. I want my enemy to die, says the modern culture that is divided straight down the middle. Feed your enemy. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. The, there's a lot of ways of looking at that scripture, but one of the ways is that in and through your behavior, you actually aid and abet him in his role, and it softens him to recognize the power and the truthfulness of your choice in life. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil wants to overcome us as the church today. It wants to overcome us as individuals. It wants to contort us and conform us into a cultural correctness and make us think and reason out of that instead of the Bible, instead of the Word of God, instead of an agreement with the Holy Spirit. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Ecclesiastes 10.4 says something very interesting. It says, if the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies, pacifies great offenses. So there's great offenses. But what are we supposed to do? According to this, conciliation is what we're supposed to do? What in the world is that? So conciliate, listen to Matthew Henry. Conciliation receives affronts and injuries as a stone is received into a heap of wool which gives way to it, and so it does not rebound back nor go any further. I thought that was just such a beautiful statement that I had to put it in. It's like you're a heap of wool, and there is a stone that is thrown at you. It could be thrown with malice, with venom, and yet you're like a heap of wool, and, just, and it just absorbs it. It doesn't bounce back. You see, many of us are like a stone getting hit with a stone, and that stone bounces off us and bounces right back and bops them in the nose. We're like, yeah, they deserve it instead of being the heap of wool that absorbs it. You see, we have been given grace, we've been given mercy, we've been given power to respond to an evil world around us in a way that no one else can, We're Christians. So it explains that our Savior in, Mar in Matthew 5.39, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. I really liked this statement by Thomas Cranmer. Actually, I don't know that it was ever spoken by Thomas Cranmer. I gave him credit for it. It was spoken about Thomas Cranmer. The way for a man to make me his friend is to do me an ill turn. Now, I'm going to read it again because it's a hard uh, statement to understand. The way for a man to make me his friend is to do me an ill turn. So in other words, if you really want to become my friend, bop me in the nose. What am I going to do? I'm suddenly going to take very curious interest in your life, and I'm going to begin to pray for you and pursue you. Anyone want to harm me? Because you're going to become my friend instantaneously because I am built to love those that hate me. I'm built to feed those that are hungry if they're my enemy. If you're, if you're my enemy and you're thirsty, ah, I can't, I'm going to go out of my way to give you drink. Isn't that an amazing thought? I really like that. The way for a man to make me his friend is to do me an ill turn. Matthew Henry. He that cannot quietly bear an injury is perfectly conquered by it. Okay, guys, I need to read this again because this is a very, very great quote. He that cannot quietly bear an injury is perfectly conquered by it. Those that revenge are the conquered, and those that forgive are the conquerors. Oh, boy, that's good. You see, what we see in our nation in this antebellum period is we see a version of Christianity that is not returning to the behavior of Christ, but is justifying fleshly animosity and feuding because, well, that's my, the way my granddad did it, and that's the way his granddad did it. 
In other words, the feud is a very dangerous mentality and it cripples true Christianity. But if we're willing to let go of the feud, which is there right now in our generation too, the enemy wants to play us against each other, but we don't buy it. We don't play that game. All right, so in the very first session, in the very beginning, I went through the leadership secrets of Lincoln. And these are just things that I observed, okay? This isn't something that Lincoln had and he, he left and, you know, for us to, to read in, as his posterity. But this is something I've cobbled together in, in studying him over the years. The leadership secrets of Lincoln. First one, draw loving lines, not hard lines. And that goes back to the first message. And then today's message, approach the nasty stuff like a Quaker. In other words, be the heap of wool that is, has a stone hurled at it and can absorb it and doesn't rebound back. Be like Thomas Cranmer and immediately take those that hate you and turn them into your best friends and pursue them with your life. That's the way we handle the nasty stuff. Don't handle the nasty stuff like the world handles it. Everyone does it that way. Do it different because you have power to do it different. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to respond differently in this hour right now. Lord Jesus, we need you to be able to do this. We need you to empower us, to enable us, to equip us. Lord, I pray that you would touch us in that one spot that maybe has been fighting and wrangling with the ideological differences around us. And I pray that you would still us and remind us how you handle such circumstances and fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable this body to reflect you. Lord, we don't want to do it our way. We want to do it your way because that's the only way that truly works. We ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.